Amen. Thank you, choir, musicians, as you make your way down. We'll get our Bibles out, open to the book of Job, chapter 2. Job, chapter 2, page 577 on the Pew Bible in front of you. Job, chapter 2. Return to Mayberry. How many people in here remember Return to Mayberry? A few. Return to Mayberry is the made-for-TV movie uh, that was made after the completion of the series, The Andy Griffith Show. Now, I've seen every episode of The Andy Griffith Show multiple times. I only count the first five seasons because once Don Knotts left, well, I lost interest. But the first five seasons of the real show, so one of my favorite shows of all time. Well, after the show was canceled, the next year, 1986, I believe it was, Return to Mayberry came out. So the story goes that Andy has left Mayberry. He got a job as a postal inspector in Cleveland. He's been gone for 20 years. It's now time for him to uh, retire, I guess, or uh, transfer back to some sort of retirement uh, living. So he goes back to Mayberry because Opie, who's now married, uh, is about to have his first child. And so he's going to become a grandfather. And so he goes back to Mayberry, having been gone for 20 years. And when he gets back, a lot of things are still the same. When he first drives into town, he has car trouble. He pulls up at Goober's Garage. They're still in there, still with the dumb hats, still carrying the wrench, still ain't fixing nothing. Everything's still the same. He... Starts going downtown and looking at familiar places and catching up with familiar people. And one by one, he meets all the old characters. Well, what's going on in Mayberry is that there was a new sheriff after Andy left. And then he left, and now Barney is the interim sheriff. Yeah. Uh, So a lot of things have changed. Otis, the town drunk, has now cleaned himself up, and he's the ice cream man. Which sort of always puzzled me that here's this wholesome family-oriented show. There's only one person in the whole show that's married, and he's drunk all the time. So I think there's some underlying significance they're trying to send out there. I mean, the guy wanted to sleep in jail every night, I'm just saying. So... So when you watch this movie, here's what you find. That things are not the way they were. Though Andy goes back to the same place, it's different. Things have changed. It's not that things are better. It's not that things are worse. It's just that they're different. And the reality begins to set in that they're never going to be the way they were. And I think there's a sense for 
people who were watching that in 1986 who were very much excited because their, the show that they loved so much was no longer on, and so they were looking forward to this show. And then when the show, when the movie came out, they sort of longed for things to go back to the way they were. And it's almost like in the movie that, that Andy is longing for things to go back to the way they were, but they can't go back to the way they were. And that's a lot like our lives. See, every year that passes for me in ministry is a year that I walk through seasons with some of you where I know that from this moment forward you will always want to go back to Mayberry, but you're never going to be able to go back. It's when your child is diagnosed with cancer. It's when you're uh, sitting in a funeral for your child or when there's a, a sudden, unexpected tragedy and we're walking through this moment together and I know that your life is going to be forever changed and that there's going to be almost a... B.C. A.D. division in your life from this moment. I'm not talking about little things. I'm talking about big things. And there are so many faces in this room this morning that I know exactly what you're thinking about right now. I remember those moments in your life. I remember the devastating pain. And I remember the just unthinkable strength it was going to take to go forward. And even now, when you think about life before that event, you think about how different things were. You know, when a, when a child is born with a, some physical challenge... That family is so grateful for the child that they have, but their life will never go back to the way it was. Never. It can't. You're forever changed. You, you, it's almost like you, you're never at ease again or when there's a close call or a tragic circumstance. You can't go back. And there are little things along the way that remind you of what it was like in Mayberry where, let's face it, everything wasn't perfect in Mayberry, was it? No. I mean, that's why they needed Sheriff Taylor. But here's the difference, is that when in Mayberry, you always had the sense that it was going to be okay. I mean, yes, there was the occasional, you know, theft of someone's chickens or... There was some uh, snake oil salesman that came into town that created some problems, or there was a moonshiner. But you knew that it was always going to get resolved by the end of the show, that it was always going to go back to being Mayberry. But we don't live in Mayberry. We live in a world where all of us are going to face 
moments, some multiple moments. Some of you are in moments right now. Some of you have already been through moments and you have moments ahead and you have no idea, nor do I. And there's just a very few in this room that maybe for you up until this point, it's all been Mayberry. But it won't stay that way. It never does. So I want to help you this morning the way God has helped me. Because I used to live in Mayberry. And for a long time, I was under the delusion that I was always going to live in Mayberry. And that even though I was continually walking through difficult circumstances and situations with other people, it never really impacted the town in which I live. I used to think sometimes that we just had the, the perfect family. Me and my wife, my two kids, and everything was always good. And yeah, there were some problems along the way, but they were Mayberry problems. We never, we never worried that they wouldn't be resolved by the end of the day. They were overcomable things. But in the grand scheme of things, it was just good. And we were always in church together and we always did everything together and everything was, was centered around God and it was just wonderful. But I don't live there anymore. Me and Lisa live in a world now where we have two grown children. On one hand, we can come into this room, I can stand up here on this platform and six or seven hundred of you can be gathered in this room and we can celebrate her marriage and we can be grateful for uh, just what a picture of blessing she is. But the other half of our children is not here. Hasn't been here for quite some time. And when you parent a prodigal, when you love someone with every fiber in your body who does not yield themselves to Christ, it is excruciatingly painful. There's not a moment of a day that goes by that you're at peace. Never. You're never at peace. You're not at peace when you sleep. It's always haunting you all the time. You see, some of you, like me, have a prodigal child. And that is the cross that you seem to bear. And so you will directly relate to many of the things I'm going to say this morning. But what I'm going to say is going to be applicable to every person in this room who loves someone who is hard to love 
or someone who is facing physical health calamities that just cause you great, great pain and suffering. I'm not going to give you a biblical discourse on suffering because there is a, a component of suffering that I won't be dealing with this morning, and that will be the component of suffering that's due to foolish living. You see, a fool in the Bible is someone who knows the right thing to do and chooses not to do it. That's a different kind of suffering. I'm talking about the suffering that is outside of you, that you can't do anything about, that isn't the result of consequences, of choices that you've made. It just is. There's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no answer, there's no solution. It just hurts 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But that's exactly where you need to be to understand the book of Job. I've been thinking about this for a long time, but as I sat last week and listened to Rod's message on hope, and I thought about what he was saying about things are bad, but they're not as bad as they could be. And how good it was to say that and to agree in that and to know that we serve a God who gives us hope. But I want us to just camp on things are bad today. Now, you knew that when you came in and saw Job too. You were like, oh, Lord. (laughs) And if you didn't, well, you should have. But the book of Job opens with the statement, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and he was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. We're introduced to Job, and from the very beginning, what's made crystal clear is that what is about to transpire is not a result of Job's disobedience. It just is. And this is where God wants to work in our hearts this morning. So let's pray and ask Him to help us, and then we'll study together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and Lord, thank You for the gift of suffering and for the instruction that comes through it. And thank You, Lord, that You are present, evident, working in our pain. And God, that You bring healing to us through Your Word. And So Father, I pray that You would do just that today. Use this passage, these words of yours, God, to minister to our hearts as only you can. We give you glory and praise in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, right after chapter 1, verse 1, everything begins to fall apart. There's a sequence of events that's really unlike any other events in the history of the world, pretty much. There's a series of servants that come in, and it's just one calamity after another. And quickly, I just want you to sort of understand a little bit about what's going on. Job's life is falling apart. He's lost all of his livestock, which basically means he's lost all of his wealth. He's lost all of his servants. Uh, In essence, he is 
went from incredibly wealthy to utterly impoverished in a matter of moments. His reputation that he has worked a lifetime to build is gone. He loses all ten of his children at one time. Seven boys, three girls, one time, gone. A tornado hits the house that they're in, and they're gone. All on the same day. And what we find out as we're looking into this book is is that unbeknownst to Job, as this unthinkable tragedy is befalling him, that behind the scenes... There's this cosmic conversation going on between God and Satan. And for reasons that we'll never fully understand, God is engaged in this conversation with Satan where Satan is accusing Job of loving God because of the blessings that he receives. Not purely loving God just for God himself. So God gives Satan permission to afflict Job as a test of his love and devotion. And through the course of this test, I think there are three very important things I want us to pull out of this that will help you in your time of suffering, in your time of struggling, in your time of bewilderment. Because they certainly have been a blessing to me. The first one is this. Our lives are a battleground for glory. Our lives are a battleground for glory. Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day, which is just a repeat of chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came alongside them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered to the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth, And from walking back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? He is blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So that phrase, without cause, tells us again that this is not something that is befalling Job due to any doing of his own. Job's not perfect by any stretch, but he is not suffering consequences of disobedience. Job's suffering was about the glory of God. And what we see here are several things. First of all, the the incredible persistence of Satan to destroy that which God loves. Notice how persistent Satan is, that he's, he's roaming to and fro, that he's searching high and low, that he is, he is consumed with this endeavor to destroy Job so that he can tarnish the glory of God. See, sometimes our suffering has really nothing to do with us at all. It's not about you. It's not about me. But it's about the glory of God. The Bible says in Ezekiel 28 about Satan, just so that we know who we're talking about here, verse 12, that he was created by God, that he was the most glorious of all the angels, that he, the Bible says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
And so this glorious creation, this chief angel, this worship-leading angel, what happened was he began to believe that all this praise and adoration that was being given to God that he was a part of was really due him. That, that it wasn't really that God wasn't due any praise and adoration. It was just that he was due praise and adoration as well. And so in Isaiah 14, the Bible says about Satan that you have said in your heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And so the problem that, uh, that caused Satan to be banished from heaven was an issue of glory. It's always been about the glory of God. It's about the glory of God today, and it will always be about the glory of God. And so this, this plays directly into what's going on in the book of Job. Here's this same tension still existing. And so Satan refused to give God glory because he wanted it for himself. And so the accusation that Satan is making concerning Job is really an accusation about God. It's not Job that Satan's interested in. It's God. But God loves Job, and Job loves God, and therefore Satan hates everything about Job and everything that he does. And so Satan's accusation is that God is only worthy of worship because of his blessings. You see, in these times when we find ourselves in circumstances and situations where we're reeling in our head, trying to figure out where did we go wrong? How did this happen? Why, how did I find myself here? There's no, there's no, it's not like you can just get up and do something to resolve your situation and make it better. It's outside of you. You, you can't make the cancer go away or you can't make your lost loved one come back. You, you can't make You can't undo something. It just is. And you're just there, left to deal with it. And of course, these times are not times where God is chastising us. But there are certainly times where God is busy. He's at work. He's evident. He's present. And the way we know that we're in these times is because we ask questions like, God, where are you? Where are you? How do you not see what's going on? Why are you not intervening? Why are you not moving? Why are you not changing of all the times for your supernatural power to seemingly be Missing, this is not the time. And so that pain that we feel, it begins to assault God's glory in our own lives because that's really what all that is. It's us struggling. Every day when we wake up, we need to remember that Satan's agenda in your life and in my life is to prove to us that God is not worthy 
of glory, that following Him is simply not worth it. That you're a fool if you love God for God. That's His agenda. That's what He's trying to do. And when we're hurting, Satan is persistent to a degree that is unrivaled at any other times in our lives. So, what does this mean? Well, it means that when your life is falling apart, seemingly, and when you, all of the things that you thought were, or, you know, the, the, the life in Mayberry that you were enjoying is beginning to slip through your fingertips, and you're beginning to realize that there's a, a transition that's going on in your life that there's going to be no coming back from. That we're never going to be able to rewind as if this didn't happen. I know sometimes people try to convince themselves that, but that's just foolishness and immaturity. You're never going to go back. Never. And that's God's intention. And as you'll see today, that's good. You don't want to go back. That's not what God's will is for you. But there's some hard truths about this that we have to really let sit on top of our hearts when we think about it. One of them is is that God cares more about His glory than He does about our comfort. He cares more about His glory than He does about our comfort. His chief aim in your life and my life is not our comfort, but it's His glory. And we don't like that. But that doesn't make it untrue. See, to put anything above His glory would make God an idolater. And a God who is an idolater is not the God of the Bible and would not be a God worthy of following. In verse 4 of chapter 2, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch the bone of his flesh and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan has has ripped apart externally all the things in Job's life. And now, as Job is not buckled under, Satan moves to the next phase of his torment, which is physical suffering, to just bring about a debilitating condition. Now, it could be that it's, a, it's, a de, it's like Job has. It's this external debilitating illness. It could be that. It could be that it's just an internal sickness over the things that are going on around you. But it's Satan's accusation that if things get bad enough, even the most righteous man on the earth will turn his back on God. Verse 6, So the Lord says to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And then he took for himself a potsherd and he began to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. 
Now we could go through all the gory details of the boils that were oozing pus and this broken piece of pottery that Job is using to scrape his skin. In chapter 2, verse 12, the Bible says his friends couldn't recognize him because he was so disfigured from his infirmities. In chapter 3, verse 24, it says he couldn't eat. In chapter 3, verse 25, he was depressed. In chapter 7, verse 3, he couldn't sleep. In chapter 7, verse 5, his wounds got infested by worms. He ended up with trouble breathing. He was up days on end. He lost so much weight, he began to wilt away. He had intense fever. The list just goes on and on and on and on and on. The point being is that he was in horrible physical calamity. But the fact still remains that Satan's primary agenda is attacking the glory of God. And the fact still remains that if you're hurting in here this morning, if, you, if your heart is broken, and it's just everything you can do to, to pull yourself up and to drag yourself to church because things just aren't as they ought to be, and you long to go back to a place that you once were, The fact that God's glory is being waged in a war, a cosmic war, is not of great consequence to you and how you're feeling. I mean, it doesn't make your pain any less. It doesn't make my pain any less. The reality that of all the head knowledge that we possess, that God can use all of our suffering for His good, it doesn't make it hurt less. In fact, in a lot of ways, it makes it hurt more because you know that things don't have to be the way that they are, but they are. And it would be more comforting if you knew that they just had to be that way and there was no other alternative. But what's really maddening is when, they, when, when you're reading Scripture and you're realizing that they don't have to be this way, but it's not changing. It's not going away. And so day in and day out, you're on this roller coaster of emotion. You've been through a season of of anger. You've been through frustration. You've been through confusion. All of that just makes you human. Listen. The heart is the seat of our emotions. When our heart is broken... When we are in severe suffering, when we are literally just hanging on by dear life, trying to, trying to just make it another day, to think that you're not going to be frustrated, confused, and angry is insanity. But then comes another principle into your mind. That truth is truth regardless of understanding. I'm going to say that again. Truth is truth regardless of understanding. You don't have to understand gravity for it to be true. It just is. You can be completely ignorant about all the physics behind gravity and all the scientific data behind gravity, but at the end of the day, it doesn't change anything about gravity, does it? 
No. You know why? Because gravity is true. And you see, the Bible is true. And our understanding of what's going on or our understanding of our circumstances or our understanding of God's agenda is unfazed. I mean, the truth of it is unfazed by our level of understanding. If we are completely ignorant or if we're grasping at pieces of it, it doesn't make it any more or less true. It just is. And that's frustrating at times. The next principle, the greater the pain, the greater the potential for God to be glorified. Now, if you're honest, that creates a problem in our hearts because it certainly does in mine. Because I want God to be glorified. And I certainly want God to be glorified in my life. But I don't want greater pain. But it's not about what I want. And it's not about what you want. It just is. The greater the pain, the greater the opportunity. So then we ask ourselves questions like, am I willing to use my pain as a platform for the glory of God? Am I even able to use my pain as a platform for the glory of God? There's a season when you're when you're first departing Mayberry where you pretend it's not even real. You, it's almost like an anomaly. You, you, you think to yourself, well, it hurts, but it's just going to be like these other things. But then you realize that the pain's not going away. That change isn't coming anytime soon. And there's where you have to begin to fight to embrace all that you're going through as an opportunity to worship. So our lives are a battleground for glory. Number two, our relationships are weapons in the battle. The question is, not are our relationships weapons in the battle. The question is, Whose hand are individual relationships in our lives in? They're all weapons, but some weapons for good, some weapons for evil. Verse 9 of Job 2 says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Have you ever wondered why Satan took everything away from Job except his wife? Maybe Otis was on to something. Listen. The problem here is that when you get to verse 9 of chapter 2, you have to stop 
take a breath. Sit back in your chair for a minute. Take a drink of your coffee. And realize Job's wife had lost everything too. Her ten kids were gone. She's watched her husband disintegrate before her very eyes. She's hurting. I mean, she is, she is bewildered. She is suffering. She's in the, in the shrapnel of what's going on. She's, her life is being completely and utterly destroyed along with Job's. And so his loss is her loss. And so out of frustration, out of bewilderment, out of not understanding or knowing how to even move forward. Listen, there was a day in my life where I would poke holes in Job's wife for verse 9. But not today. Suffering has a way of overwhelming us. It has a way of making us say things that we never thought we would say. It has a way of just slowly beginning to break down and assault the relationships in our lives and start just eating them away. And, and it's, it's, it's as Mayberry fades into the distance of the rearview mirror. And the reality that it's gone and it's not coming back. Satan then turns his evil towards ripping apart families and marriages and churches that hurt has a way of just exposing the potential harm that relationships can cause. And we have to remember that one of Satan's favorite tactics in Scripture is to use those closest to us as a great source of discouragement. He did this to the Lord Jesus when uh, he began his ministry. His own family was calling him demon-possessed. And in John chapter 7, verse 5, even his brothers didn't believe him. It was a source of great discouragement. Then he... He invests himself in 12 men, these close disciples. And of those 12, Judas betrays him. The one he had invested in the most, Peter, he denies him. The Lord hangs on the cross alone. Where are they? They're gone. They're not there standing up for him. All the wonderful things that they'd seen, all the amazing things that they'd experienced, all the, all the assurances that they had professed. Think of all the things that had transpired up until that point. And there's Jesus on the cross, and where are they? You've been hurting? You've been suffering? You ever feel utterly and completely alone? You feel as if there's people around you, but... Satan just uses them as tools for discouragement if you're not careful. Listen, these weren't, the, the disciples weren't bad men. These were amazing men of God who had 
given everything to follow Christ and yet they still, unbeknownst to them, allowed themselves to be used as a great source of discouragement. Remember in Matthew 16 where Jesus turned aside to Peter, verse 23, and he said, Get behind me, Satan. That's a very instructive passage about the potential that we have if we're not careful to be used as a weapon for Satan and not for good. And I think Job's wife is a good reminder of that. Her advice to curse God and die is exactly the will of Satan. That's exactly what this whole conflict is about. Exactly what she says. So what's the principle? Well, if you're suffering this morning, if you're in the midst of just a heartbreaking situation, maybe it's brand new, maybe it's been going on for years, maybe it's been going on for decades. And as I'm talking, it's just resonating in your heart. Listen, you need to be careful what you allow yourself to believe. You need to be very cautious about who and what you allow to come into your ears. Because good people around you can be great weapons of Satan, of discouragement, if you're not careful. The best advice I can give you is the advice that I give myself, and that's this. Always base your understanding of people on long spans of time. Never conclude that somebody is who they've made themselves to be just in one instant. You see, if I've known you for five years or ten years, or many of you in this room I've known for 20 years, and you say something hurtful to me, the way I keep it from hurting me is because I've known you for 20 years, and that comment does not define the 20-year span that I've known your nature and character. It just defines a moment in time. But what I often find in immature people is that they live in relationships moment by moment by moment. And that is a terrible mistake to make. And aren't you glad today that Christ didn't do that? Because if He would have, none of us would be here today. You base who people are based on what they have shown you over a span of time. But that's if you're hurting. What if you're, what if you're in proximity to somebody who's hurting? How do you take this information and, and put it to good use and not be used as a weapon of discouragement? Well, I would say this. When you approach and speak to somebody who is heartbroken, be very careful what you say. If pastors know anything, 
It's that when we rush into the emergency room or when we're standing with a family in the funeral home or the morgue or whatever the case may be, that when other people approach, we cringe because we hear people say the stupidest things. Don't speak to a heartbroken person without thinking about what you're saying. Because they're hurting. And sometimes they just need you to shut up and listen. And when you feel compelled to just talk, it's going to be painful. I have literally scooped people up in my arms and walk them away from conversations of brothers or sisters in Christ because of what was not meant for evil, but it's unnecessary. Be careful. Be careful. So our lives are a battleground for glory. I've learned that our relationships are weapons in the battle. And number three, our perspective in the battle is critical. We talked about perspective last week. But we need to go back and we need to think about it in this context some more. In verse 10, Job says, but he said to her, he responds to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Now this is what I want you to notice, that Job doesn't call her foolish. He's not chastising her for, for what she said, he's condemning her words. He's simply advocating that she not speak as a person who's foolish. That's what, she, that's what he does. And then he goes on to say, Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. It is astonishing to me how how many people that never acknowledge God's goodness when things are going well are so quick to raise their fist to Him as soon as life gets hard. That as soon as cancer comes, not an instant or a thought is ever given to all of the cancer-free days that were never Never once was God thanked for that. But now suddenly that has become difficult. Oh God, how could you do this? There's been so many moments in these present days in Lisa and I's life where we have, we are so thankful for our days in Mayberry. We thank God for those days in Mayberry. They're a gift. And I know people sitting in this room right now that didn't get those days. You see? Perspective. That no matter how bad it is right now, we can always look back and be grateful for the time that we did have. What right do I have to freely accept all the blessings of God And then cry foul as soon as suffering comes into my life. 
Mm -mm. Job teaches me that it's perfectly fine to ask God why. Over and over in the book of Job, Job looks to the heavens and he says, why? Why, God? Why is this happening? There's no... There's nothing wrong with asking God why, but there is something definitely wrong with demanding that God answer. And Job doesn't cross that line. And Job has really ministered to my heart with regards to that issue. God's never obligated to explain or to defend anything that he does. He doesn't need to justify his actions. He's God, and we're not. And he makes that clear to Job. And what God is teaching me through the book of Job is that having and knowing him as my Savior is really better, infinitely better, than having answers to all of my questions. That sometimes... When I'm weeping, I remind myself that if I knew the answer to all my questions, if I knew when things were going to change, if I knew what God was up to, if I could see the end from where I was, Although my flesh wants to believe that it would make all my problems go away, it really wouldn't change my present experience. Now, would it? It really wouldn't. It would still hurt. And I would much rather know Him and have Him than I would all of my flesh's questions asked, answered. So what is the central issue in our suffering? And what is the central issue in the book of Job? And what is all of this about? What is the central issue in your life this morning? What is it that you have to, uh, to, to understand as, as you walk out of this room this morning? Job is not about... Why do the righteous suffer? That's not what the book of Job is about, and that's not the the question that's being posed. The question is, why do people serve God? That's the question. That's what's at issue between Satan and God. Why would anybody serve this God? You see, it bothers so many of us that the book of Job is even in the Bible. It bothers us to think about the fact that they had this conversation. It bothers us to think about the fact that God said, have you considered my servant Job? That Satan didn't come to God and say, God, uh, how about Job? Give me Job. God was the one that said, why don't you take Job? It was God's idea to take Job. That bothers us. That doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't seem right to us, but that's the point of the whole book. The point of the book is to cause you to ask the question, why would you serve a God like that? Why would you serve the God of the Bible? Why would you believe the God of the Bible? Why would you 
Put your life in the hands of the God of the Bible. The reason why the vast majority of the world in which we live in ignores everything that we're talking about this morning is because it doesn't make sense to them. But it better make sense to you. Why do you serve God? Why did you wake up this morning? Why did you come here? What are you doing? What is the point of all this? Is it so that God will bless you? Because if it is, you're simply siding with Satan. If you're here this morning and you say in the secret places of your heart, if God weren't good to me, I wouldn't serve him. You're simply agreeing with Satan who is standing as the accuser before Job declaring that nobody would serve God simply for who he is. They would only serve him for what they could get. You know what the ultimate slander of God is? It's that he's not worthy of worship for who he is alone. That if God stopped blessing us, if he just stopped blessing us, would we continue to follow him? You see, it exposes this terrible place in our heart that reveals why so many people are drawn to the heresy of the prosperity gospel. That if you have enough faith, God's will is for every child of his to be healthy and prosperous and wealthy. And if you believe that, then you align yourself with Satan. Do you understand what's going on here? A a person who says that, well, if that's how God's going to treat me, or if this is the circumstances I'm in, or if this is the situation I'm in, or if this is the lot I have, or if this is the cross I have to bear, then I'm not going to serve a God like that. Then you're simply agreeing with Satan. You see, at the root of all of our quest for answers is really God, are you still there? And do you still care? The issue is not, is God real? We're not asking that question. We're asking the question, does God care? And if he cares, where is it? And the good news is, is that Job asked those questions. And we get to walk with Job through that process. 
When you get to Job 23, he begins to cry out and say, God, where are you? I don't see you. I can't perceive you. I, I, you seem far from me. And my, my heart is, is resonating with that feeling. That, that feeling of just, you're just a zombie going through, going through the motions. You know, you, you just force a smile on the outside, but on the inside, you just want to cry. You just want to cry. You know that feeling where there's maybe, I mean, thank God I, I don't know what it's like to be alone. In my suffering. But thank God for just that one person who understands that you don't have to say anything to, they just understand. I noticed that as I was driving away from Mayberry, not immediately, not in the throes of it, but as I really began to get far away from it, when it really began to shrink off the horizon behind me, then I began to notice all the ways that it was changing me. I began to read things in Scripture, and I began to realize what God had been up to in me and how He was glorifying Himself even in ways I wasn't aware of. I noticed how my prayer life changed. I noticed that I started talking a whole lot less to God and I started listening a whole lot more. I started noticing the fellowship that I would have with my wife in times where it was especially hard. And we would sit together and hold hands and not say a word to one another. Not one word. And there was great comfort in that we were in this together and that we knew that God was with us. And I began to realize that my relationship with God was, was a reflection of this, my changing relationship with my wife, that we were growing so close together that we would communicate without saying anything. And that we would know. We just know. But Job doesn't leave us there. 
when he gets done ranting in chapter 23, then the Bible gets to verse 10. And Job, as he's leaving Mayberry, I believe has this aha moment. And he says, But he, the Lord, knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. How many times have I quoted that verse to myself? Over and over and over and over. How many times have I sat and cried with you? And in my heart, I'm reciting this verse over and over and over for you. It's a reminder that God is always, always, always concerned about what's going on in your life. He always cares about what's happening to his children. And just because we can't feel it doesn't mean it's not there. Three quick things from Job chapter 23, verse 10. Number one, God's always aware of our pain. How do I know that? Because look at what it says in verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. He knows. He knows that. The God of the universe knows the way that you take if you're his child. He knows that way. It didn't catch him off guard. It wasn't new to him. And I have to remind myself that every day that I lived in Mayberry, God knew there was a day coming when I wouldn't be there anymore. He knew that. I didn't know that, but he knew that. And so he ministered to me then the way I needed to be ministered to to prepare me for now so that I'd be able to grow in his grace that I'd be able to glorify him through the valley. He's aware of my pain. In Proverbs chapter 5, the Bible says, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Psalm 34, the scripture says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and such as have a contrite spirit. God's always aware of our pain. Number two, God is active in our problems. Mm. The scripture says, When he has tested me, when he has tested me, It's a reminder that when he seems a million miles away from us, that he is testing us. He's not causing it, but he's allowing it. He's testing. And so if he's testing, he's responsible for the end result. You see, that's the beauty of being a follower of Christ. That in my weakness, his strength is made perfect. Amen. And you have to know that. You have to know That when I'm tested, he's tested. He's with me in the testing. And that God's going to, he's going to use my challenges and my struggles to strengthen my faith. As he certainly has. Me and so many of you. But there's just some growth that only comes through suffering. 
We know that. James chapter 1 says, Count it all joy when you fall into trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but the patience, let it have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, if comfort were the goal, we'd just be angry with God when we were uncomfortable. If the plan was for us to live in ease, then we'd be frustrated whenever things got difficult. If our happiness was His priority, then we would forever feel betrayed whenever we were unhappy. What a disaster that would be. But thanks be to God that He is a God who loves us in a perfect love. His love's not a a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. His agenda in my life is not my happiness. His agenda in my life is my holiness. And so my suffering has made me a better pastor. It's made me way more compassionate and far less dogmatic. Second Corinthians chapter 1 says, Who comforts us in all our tribulation? that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, we can't give what we haven't received. So I always thought that all the hardship that I faced in my childhood was what God used to prepare me to be His vessel. And when I moved into Mayberry, I had no intention of moving out. But it wasn't up to me. And so out we go. And the realization is, is that in a spiritual sense, it's been the most painful but most productive season spiritually in my life. He's aware of my pain. He's active in my problems. And then he's glorious in his plan. So he says that I'll come forth like gold. Yeah, everybody wants to come forth like gold. But purity never comes before purging. Adversity must come before dependency. It's the only way it can work. And it's God's unrelenting desire to make us more and more like His Son, Jesus, to walk with us through our times of suffering and hurting and pain. And you don't have to be... You you could just be on the periphery of this faith family and realize that there's been a lot of suffering and a lot of loss in the last year. And it's not new and it's not different, but it just is. 
But what I've noticed is that I'm able to love deeper. I'm able to pray harder. I'm able to cry so much more. I'm able to sit and listen and thoughtfully reason in my heart before I jump to a conclusion. Because we don't always know all the circumstances surrounding situations. No, my suffering is not going to be my end. It's been terrible and it may continue to be terrible. Your suffering has been terrible and it may continue to be terrible. But if you know Jesus, it's not going to be your end. It may last a long time. It may last the rest of the time you have. I don't know. But when it's all said and done, we're going to come forth like gold. See, at the end of the day, I'm a Christian, and my Savior is Jesus Christ. And the way that He became my Savior was that He laid His life down on the ultimate battleground for the glory of God. That if the Son of God saw it fit, to lay his life down for the glory of God willingly and joyfully, then certainly I can embrace my suffering for the glory of God and allow God to have his perfect work in me. And you, brother and sister, can do the same. Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him, the Lord Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at that name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, for what? To the glory of God the Father. That what we endure today, we don't have all the answers for. But I can tell you this, brother and sister, I can tell you that if Jesus is your Savior, it will not be your end. And that the God that we serve is a God who at the end of the day will make you like gold. So in this world, I, will face tribulation. But I will be of good cheer. For Jesus has overcome the world. Let's stand and bow our heads.